When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today I'll be talking to Lincoln Mitchell, author of the new book, The 100 Most Important Players in Baseball History. Lincoln is a professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and has written big books on topics ranging from foreign policy to the history of San Francisco to baseball. Lincoln, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be back here on the New Books Network. As I told you before, I really enjoyed this book because it's not your typical, you know, 100 greatest uh, baseball players or greatest ever. You know, we love lists and rankings and but this isn't a ranking per se. It's and it it focuses more on the importance of baseball players. Um, So I guess I'll start with asking you what. What is what, what is the criteria? What makes a baseball player important? And and I would just add, it's not it's not a ranking at all because the players are presented in alphabetical order. So Henry Aaron is first because of a his name begins with two A's, not because he's the most important. And Cy Young is last, not because he's the one hundredth. I had several criteria for what makes a player important, and they could break down into two areas. The smaller area is people who we can say had a major impact on American culture, American society, or American history. And the players who fall into that category are, one is Jim Bunning, who was a Hall of Fame pitcher, you know, not the greatest pitcher in the Hall of Fame, but a Hall of Fame pitcher, who went on to become a very conservative senator and served in Congress for about 20 years between both houses of Congress. And that's an, that's an important figure in American history. So even, so he, so that, that's like Mo Berg, I don't know if anyone saw the recent film Oppenheimer, uh, but there's a moment in the film where they, where one of the characters says to, to Oppenheimer, you know, we're going to be okay because uh, the Germans, we, we, Heisenberg doesn't know as much as we do. Heisenberg isn't as far along as we think he is. We feared he was. And the reason they knew that is because Moberg found it out, right? So, so this is an enormously important person in the kind of spycraft of World War II. Including that are also people like Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson, whose impact on American culture goes beyond baseball. Jackie Robinson, you can't tell the story of the American civil rights movement without including Jackie Robinson in the post-war period. And if you leave Jackie Robinson out, it's because you're trying to make a point about sports being unimportant or some nonsense like that. And Babe Ruth really, besides being such a great ball player, as was Jackie Robinson, really is an important figure in the creation of the American idea of celebrity. So that's one group of, pl- of players. The other are players who had an enormous impact on the game as we understand it today, either on the field or off the field. So, for example, on the field is Hoyt Wilhelm. Hoyt Wilhelm is is in the book because he was the first of the modern relievers. And the biggest story about baseball in the last 70 years is the evolution of the bullpen. So Hoyt Wilhelm helps us tell that story. Uh, Another player who's in there, not, not so much... For, for on the field would be players like Kurt Flood and Andy Messersmith, who are among those catfish hunters in that group too, who really crafted, who really were, were, were trailblazers in changing the financial arrangements that govern Major League Baseball. And then there are other players as well because they're part of the kind of racial, ethnic, uh, or LGBT in the case of Glenn Burke history of the United States, which we can understand through baseball. And... How did you go about collating this list? What was the process? Did you just start writing down names of people you thought were important? Well, if I answer that question honestly, it starts by being a child and getting obsessed with baseball. 
and rarely going 30, 30 waking seconds without uh, thinking about baseball. Now, some of you may be uh, listening and saying there's something slightly wrong with that. And um, at least one mental health professional has told me that I am obsessed with baseball. So I have certified that I, this is an obsession. But you think about it a lot. And then I started and – then, and then what happened was during the uh, – really during the, the shutout, the lockout in 2022, when there wasn't much real baseball news, I started thinking about this. I, I write for a Yankees website called Start Spreading the News, and I came up with this idea. And what I did was I started with the obvious. Then I started with the guys who were less obvious but I think are important, Messersmith, Burke, Dolph Luque is on the list. And, and then I made a list and, you know, you get to 70 and then you blink and you're at 130. You have to start cutting. I talk to people, you know, well, I'll give you an example of a guy that was on the list and then off the list was Johnny Bench. Obviously Johnny Bench is a great player. Um, but you know, what, what I thought he would be on the list for was not just for being a great player, but because he really modernized the position of catcher, you know, a power hitter. He was such a great defender who really, and if you go back and look at old videos, he's really changing the game. But then I said, I can tell that story with Yogi Berra, who also is a great power hitting catcher and not, and, and, and leave space for someone else. And there's more to say about Yogi Berra. So cutting and then talking to people and saying, you know, does Roger, Roger Breshnahan, because he invented the, you know, the chest protector, is that really the right guy? You know, so, so that kind of thing. There's, I could be, I could be dishonest with you and say I had a spreadsheet and a point allotment system. But I didn't. This is a subjective list. Is this the perfect list? No, not necessarily. Is this my perfect list? Yes. Will I be angry if you said, you know, why is Albert Pujols off this list? You made a mistake. No. I, I want a good book, in my view, uh, answers, asks more questions than it answers. Yeah. And as I told you before we came on, certainly I, it got my mind running, you know, as to who are the most important people. And, and uh, as you said, there's naturally a subjective nature to it, right? I mean, I... I mean, one guy that jumped to mind for me, for example, uh, was Phil Rizzuto because right. Phil Rizzuto was the, for, for me, for people my age, Yankee fans, he was the soundtrack of the game of baseball. And, and of course, he's in the Hall of Fame as a player, which is debatable to say the least. But for me, the, his influence was was as an as a broadcaster. He touched my life in a deep emotional way. And that might be specific to... <clears throat> you know, Yankee fans between the age of 35 and 50 and not the game as a whole. But it but it but just to your point, it really reading the book gets you starting to think of from an objective standpoint, but also from a personal subjective standpoint, who are the most important people in baseball. And, and there's a lot of you raise a lot of interesting points there because and, I, you know, my grandfather, who was born in 1907, so much older than either, you, you know, he's not around anymore, but a really different generation and a first generation American grew up in the Bronx and became a Yankees fan. And then in the in 19, he lived his whole life in, in New York City, 1947, because he was uh, somebody who was uh, on the left politically, he became a Dodgers fan because of Jackie Robinson, the Dodgers left and then he became a Yankees fan again because that's, you know, he's a New Yorker. And I grew up in the – I would spend my – we were very, very close. And I would spend my summers with him and he hated Phil Rizzuto. He would watch the games. I mean he liked him as a player. But he hated him and he would just say, just tell me the score. It used to get him crazy. But right. for example, Dizzy Dean is there because the story of broadcasting is important. Right. And then there are a handful of players. You're mentioning Phil Rizzuto. Now some might say yeah, there's a lot of Yankees in this book. But the Yankees are an important team. Joe DiMaggio is in the book. Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Derek Jeter in more modern times. But there are players in the book. I'll give you one example. Ernie Banks. Stan Musial, George Brett. Now, these are obviously great players. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. Because they get at this issue of one player meaning so much to a fan base. And that's an important part of how, how what baseball, the role play, baseball plays in American culture. But you can't do that for every team because then you start out with 30 players before you even scratch the surface. So just sure. a few. Some, some got left off. You know, I'm yeah. sure there are people in New England who are furious that I left Carl Yastrzemski off off the list. But you know, Ted Williams is also a big part of the Red Sox history. And he's sure. in the book as are a number of other Red Sox. Yeah. Um, so I want to get into some of the individual uh, 100 that you talked about. Um, one that you touched on a little bit was Mo Berg. Can you can you go a little bit more into his story? Of course, I know there was a, a book at, and I believe a movie written about oh, him. Yeah. The catcher was a spy. Um, Talk a little bit more about Mo Berg because this is a fascinating story. He's such a fascinating character. He So Mo Berg's career is roughly the 20s and the 30s, Depression era. And as you may have gathered from his name, Mo Berg was Jewish. 
And this was at a time, not only when there were very few Jewish ballplayers, there are many more now, but where uh, anti-Semitism in the United States was stronger. And as part of that anti-Semitism was the stereotype that, you know, Jews can't play sports, right? Uh, I think Ken Greenberg would like to have a word about that, as would, you know, Sandy Koufax. But that was the stereotype. And the truth is that Moberg was, you know, in today's parlance, he was a back, good field, no-hit back, backup catcher. He could never really hit, but he could he could field. He'd gone to Princeton University, so he was not a, a stupid man. He was an educated man and a smart man, and he learned a whole lot of languages. And and he stayed in baseball for a long time. And what and to me, that's very poignant there. Why is this guy who could really be doing anything and went on to do a lot of different things in baseball? And the reason is because like me and you and many of the listeners, he loved baseball. And if I'd had a chance to spend, you know, four years or 20 years as, you know, the seventh left-handed reliever on a major league baseball team, even with those money in those days, I would have done it, right? So that's yeah. something that captures that. But then also he did, he, he was an enormous, probably of any major league player. And look, several players gave their lives in World War II and World War I. So the people who really made the ultimate sacrifice, but such an important role in American military history. So in this 1934 tour of Japan with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox and Lefty O'Doul and all these stars, Berg goes along as one of the catchers, goes to the hospital in Tokyo. He gets up on a on a hill on a high floor and he takes all these pictures, which are later used for targeting during World War II. Then in, in, in really the story that gets in the catcher was a spy and which is alluded to in the Oppenheimer book during World War II. He is dispatched, he's with the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, that's obviously World War II, and he's, he's dispatched to, I believe, uh, Zurich, somewhere in Switzerland, to a conference. And speaking at that conference is uh, Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg. Now, for those of you who studied physics, you will know Heisenberg primarily, I think, for the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is, which right. is a good physics principle, which also applies to social sciences and to life. But, but Heisenberg was the lead German scientist developing the bomb. And as Oppenheimer points out in that book, one of the reasons we, we won that race is because of anti-Semitism. All the, all the Jewish physicists obviously were fled. Most of them came here, and, and we benefited from that brain power. Berg was assigned with his physics background to hear Heisenberg spit, speak. He was given a gun and a cyanide pill and told, if you think he's ahead of us in the development of the bomb, shoot him and take the pill. And he went, and he did it, heard the speech assessed that we were ahead of them, came back, didn't, didn't do either of those things, shoot him, shoot Heisenberg or kill himself, came back, reported on that. And we, I mean, you know, we can d discuss, and maybe that's another podcast, the ethics of should we have used the bomb the way we did. But he did, he, he did, that's an, that's an extraordinary contribution to, to World War II. Yeah. Uh, and, and then Berg lived the rest of his life and, and, and died not that old. And apparently he died in the early 70s. And apparently his last words, which is maybe apocryphal, were how the Mets do today. So this was a man who, who, who <laughs> things, really loved baseball. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, so we talk about collating the lists and how you kind of came up with names. And, uh, you know, obviously one, uh, you know, one huge category is just is groundbreakers, right, of one kind or another. And often that was of the racial ethnic tilt um you're talking about felipe alou uh you're talking about i i really enjoyed uh reading about some of the latinos because um you know i think uh we've tended to i mean obviously jackie is such a seminal figure um and there's been so much written and talked about the plight of the you know early african-americans in baseball and i personally and i think a lot of people don't know as much about the early Latino players. So you talk about some in the book. There was uh, there was Alou. There was obviously Clemente, Marichal. Uh, yes, you talked about yes, Minoso, uh, Fernando Mania, of course. Um, what so what was it like for some of the early Latino players in well, baseball? And and can maybe t talk about a couple specifically. Well, this is another character, another player in the book that's critically important here is Dolph Luke, and because. You know, and, and, and if we think of Alou, Felipe, the Alou brothers, but for the purpose of the book, Felipe Alou, who's in the book, uh, Juan Marchal, Roberto Clemente, uh, Orestes Minoso, they were all Afro-Latinos. They were all dark-skinned Latinos. And when there was, before Jackie Robinson, players like that simply were not allowed to play in the American International League. So 
Uh, an example of someone who's not in the book is Louis Tiant, the great Red Sox. We all remember him from the 75 World Series. I mean, if you're a Yankees fan, it may not be the fondest of memories until 79 when he came to the Yankees and had a pretty good year. But, right. but his father, who was a great, the best left-handed pitcher in Cuba, never had a chance to pitch in, in the United States, although he played against black Americans in various exhibitions and things like that. Dolph Luque was a light-skinned Latino pitcher from Cuba, and he pitched for about 15, 18 years in the United States, primarily for the Cincinnati Reds, but also for the New York Giants, and was a very, very good pitcher. So I, I put him in the book because, and he's, I think, one of the least known, but very important because it shows the complexity of the racial politics around Latino ballplayers. If you were light enough skinned, you would pass but be described as Spanish. And if you were dark enough skinned, you could play in the Negro Leagues or back at home. So, and then there's these, these, these trailblazers like Minoso, who was Cuban, Clemente, who was Puerto Rican, and Alou, Felipe Alou, who was Dominican. And, and Juan Marichal and Felipe Alou did not grow up far from each other, the Alou brothers. I believe Felipe tipped the Giants off. There was a pitcher in his neighborhood that maybe they'd take a look at. Oh, wow. Um, and, and their experiences. And, and also just, I mean, so, so Felipe Alou in 1964 with the uh, late Arnold Haino, the famous sports writer, wrote an article in Sport Magazine, Latin American ballplayer need a bill of rights. And they talked about some of the challenges. I mean, famously on the Giants, because at one point all three brothers were on the team, and Alvin Dark said that in the clubhouse, you're not allowed to speak in Spanish, prompting, I believe it was Felipe, to say, are you telling me I can't speak to my brother, my literal brother, in our <laughs> native language, right? Right. And, and the globalization of, ga- of the game, is, is that is the story of baseball and they're in the last half century. And there have been some bad stories, right? We've had strikes. We have PED, PED, PEDs. We've had Kurt Schilling. We've had all these things. The best story about baseball, in my view, the best thing that's happened to baseball in the last half century is how globalized it's become, not least because the product on the field really is the best players in the world. And and the guys like Minoso and Alou are part of that. Fernando takes a different role in here because specifically because I, I don't know if, if you've Go to a Giants-Dodgers game, and I try to get to them as much as possible when I'm in, you know, if I'm in San Francisco, uh, when the Giants, when the Dodgers are there, visiting the Giants, because I'm, I'm a Giants fan. And the rivalry is the most intense. And I, I have a, my, my high school baseball coach from San Francisco, who's a lifetime Giants fan. We had lunch when I was out there a little while ago, and, and you know, he probably, he's probably old enough to have seen the San Francisco Seals. So we're talking about a guy who's a real Giants fan. Okay. And, he, uh, and he said he was in New York, he was in the East Coast. And he wanted to go to Yankees-Red Sox game. So went to Fenway Park, went to a Yankees-Red Sox game. He's a baseball guy. And he said, the rivalry is nothing like the Giants-Dodgers rivalry. It's not nearly as intense. This is an intense rivalry. You go today and it's mostly in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, and but when the Dodgers first came to LA, they never had Mexican-American fans because the, the Mexican-Americans resented the Dodgers because they displaced the Mexican-American community. Well, right. Fernando comes along at a time when the Mexican population is growing in Los Angeles and the United States generally. And he electrifies America and he electrifies baseball. And to this day, he's announcing the games in Spanish. So he's a massively important trailblazer. I think there's a, you know, we all have our, our Hall of Fame favorites. And, and, and if a lifelong Giants fan is telling you that there's a Dodger who belongs in the Hall of Fame, we need to listen. To me, it is appalling that Jack Morris is in the Hall of Fame and Fernando Valenzuela is. Interesting. Um. So speaking of ethnicity, I, I you know um, Joe DiMaggio is in the book, and everybody knows Joe DiMaggio. Um, you know everybody's heard Paul Simon sing the lyrics, and um, you know obviously a huge figure in American culture. But I, I maybe you can talk a little bit about how important he was to Italians, Italian Americans, because I think that's lost to some people on on kind of how Italians were viewed at that time and what he represented to them. That's absolutely right. Joe DiMaggio grew up in the North Beach, North Beach section of San Francisco, which <clears throat> those of you who spent time in San Francisco, it's, it's a, wasn't a long time Italian American neighborhood. Still, it still is, but it became in the fifties and sixties kind of a, a counterculture hub as well. So the beatnik movement starts out there. You know, there's some great clubs. The punk rock movement was in North Beach. Um, his father was a fisherman during world war II. His father was not allowed to go out on his boat on the bay. Because he was Italian American, he was not—he was not a citizen of the United States, and he was seen as a security risk. He was not, but that's how he was seen. Fortunately, by then his sons were able to help the family out because they were playing in the major leagues. He comes to New York, where for the we're talking about Joe now uh, with the Yankees. Now, now what's significant about Joe DiMaggio 
is that he came from a city with a huge Italian-American population. And the Yankees were very smart about bringing these guys. So Tony Lazzari and DiMaggio grew up in the same neighborhood, for example. Right. Comes to another city with a massive Italian-American population at a time when Italian-Americans were discriminated against, both because of their Catholic faith, because of their immigrant status, and because they were Italian. And there's and there are, you know, Life magazine talks does an interview with him and a story about him, and they says he doesn't smell like garlic. Like that's in Life magazine. And he he, he he brushes his hair, you know, with water, not olive oil. It's all they all but say he's not in the mob, right? right. So and and he becomes this real point of pride. And 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 you know, if you talk, um I, I was actually teaching a class once, and we somehow got on the subject because I was teaching the class about uh and, and it was an older Italian-American guy who was auditing the class. And we were talking about a campaign commercial and signaling and all this. It was a political science class. And he points out, the topic came up for whatever reason. He says, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, everyone in Brooklyn rooted for the Dodgers, but not the Italians. The Yankees were, he was Italian, the Yankees were our team. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and of course, the rest of the class is kind of lost. <laughs> not at the rest, but some of the students who don't know baseball are lost. But he brought it up and he says, well, you know, DiMaggio and then, of course, Berra, Rizzuto before that, Lazari. And right. Dima- so, so he was the pride of Italian America. He showed – was critical in showing the rest of America, you know, that bigotry against Italian Americans was, was, was nonsensical. So, so he's in that book uh, absolutely for that reason as well as his bigger impact on the culture and the symbolism of, of Joe DiMaggio. Sure. Yeah. Um... We're, I want to go back to a minute about, you know, the the, uh, the the growing of the game internationally. And another person in the book is, I hope I pronounce this right, Masanori Murakami. Yes. Um, who I'd never heard of before. Uh, was the first Japanese player to play in Major League Baseball. Um, maybe you could talk a, a little bit about him. And I'm also wondering why, why do you think it took so long for the second, third, fourth Japanese player to come after him? So Masanori Murakami was a left-handed pitcher. He was a reliever here in the United States. And he played for the San Francisco Giants in 64 and 65. And and a couple points here. In 1964 and 65, the San Francisco Giants clubhouse was one of the most racially and ethnically diverse clubhouse workplaces in America. Right? Just think about that. They had Latinos from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico. They had African Americans. They had, of course, white Americans from all over the country. And they had an Asian American. Many, many work. Workplaces weren't like that back then. Right. Now, by now if, if you're pitching, if you're Japanese pitching in the major leagues in 1965, and every ballpark, there are veterans who fought against Japan in World War II. Right? Just think about the age that the fans would have been. Sure. So that's and, – and, and he was good. You know, if you look at his career quickly, two years, he probably wasn't good enough to cut it. But if you look at the numbers, he was very good. What happened is his Japanese team wanted him back. And the contract, there was some contestation over the contract. But basically, they had they had essentially lent him to the Giants. They wanted him back, and they took him back, and he pitched for another fifteen years in in Japan. Uh, so so he really made it made it clear at that point that Japanese players were good enough to play here if you were paying attention. A, a fantastic footnote is that in the Juan Marichal game, the, the the worst moment of Juan Marichal's career, when he clobbers John Roseboro over the head, Murakami got the save in that game. He got the final two outs because Marshall was, of course, thrown out of the game immediately after that happened. A guy named Ron Herbel came in as the kind of middle reliever and took the Giants to the ninth inning. Couldn't get out of the ninth inning. Murakami came in and got the final two outs. So to me, this is this is this figure that is forgotten. I mean, I started going to Giants games in the late 70s, and older fans, no, but they would talk a little bit. They were more interested in talking about the Seals and lefty O'Doul than about Murakami. Mm. Well, he gets kind of just swallowed up by the narrative of baseball and all the noise and various issues around baseball. And it takes until 1995 when Hideo Nomo comes along. And yeah. I, I actually had a discussion yesterday with a Japanese graduate student of mine who happened to be a big baseball fan. So naturally we were chatting and he knew exactly who Murakami was. And he said, he didn't even know about the book. And he said, unprompted, but the guy who's really important is Hideo Nomo. And I said, you're right. Nomo comes along and it's a dominant starting pitcher for the Dodgers. It's almost like Fernando Mania Redux, but in Japanese, not Spanish. Right. And at that point, American fans have to say, okay, clearly we're onto something here. Why in that 30-year in that interregnum, why so long? You know, I don't know the, the, the absolute truth of that. There's a lot of racism there, right? You know, Japanese, they're smaller. They're not as good. They can't hit the ball as hard. There was a lot of that. And, and also because players here who were slightly past their prime would go over there. But you'd only hear about the ones who would succeed. 
Then right. you would go over there. They can no longer hit in the U.S. Turns out they couldn't hit in Japan either, right? Right. Another guy who's in the book is Sadahara Oh, who was the greatest of all Japanese players, and he never played here in the United States. And But the American players of that era, so, you know, kind of Frank Robinson, Sadahara Oh's career, think of him as, as in terms of how he, his skill set and his appearance and the position in the years he played, almost like a Willie McCovey type, right? Uh, 59 to 80, left-handed, mostly first base, a little outfield. A little outfield. And, and all of these guys are saying, all of these guys are saying uh, that he could easily play in the major leagues. So, so, so I don't know why it took all those 30 years. I, it's, there, there's a racism to that, right? That sure. oh, they, they can't do it. And also, you know, there just wasn't much interest in it. Baseball was going through a lot. There was a lot of labor going on. There was, you know, the kind of second phase of African-Americans coming in. There was a lot of racial tension in baseball in the 70s that people weren't as aware of. I read a lot of, a lot of players I've talked about in that context. And there were still fans going. And also Japan, because it's further away, because it's a wealthy country and a strong state, they don't want players to be poached, right? Mm-hmm. The best player in the Dominican Republic will sign a contract with an American team, no questions asked. Puerto Rico is actually part of the United States. Venezuela is similar to the Dominican Republic. Cuba is more complicated. But Cuban right. players, once they were able to get out, were very happy to come here. Japan's more complicated, too, in that regard. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Um... Some other groundbreakers I want to talk about. One, uh, Glenn Burke. Um, yes. His story, he's, he's a great story for a couple of reasons. Uh, what made Glenn Burke so important? Well, Glenn Burke was the first, I'm going to have to say this exactly, the first out LGBT gay baseball player. But he wasn't really out. He was just, everyone kind of knew, right, when he was playing. And Burke's career was in the late 70s through 1980 with the Dodgers and the Oakland A's. And he got, he, you know, there was, a, there was a time, this was an era when homophobia and bigotry against gay people, was, gay people was ubiquitous and unquestioned. And even for that time, he had the ill fortune to play for two particularly bigoted managers, Tommy Lasorda and Billy Martin. Lasorda's son was gay. He kind of blamed Glenn Burke for turning his son gay, which is, wow. people don't turn people gay, <laughs> right? Right. Even great baseball players don't turn people gay. That's not how life works. But that's what Tommy Lasorda thought. So he he and and he bounces around. He ends up in the with the A's. He then ends up getting released by the A's. He's from Oakland, California. Moves to San Francisco, which at that time and still probably today is one of the centers of gay culture, and starts you know just kind of going about his life as a gay man in San Francisco. Part of his life is playing softball. In the late seventies and early eighties, there were days when more people would turn out to watch the gay softball league than the Giants. <laughs> and when you're a f- two years removed, I mean, he played in the World Series in 1978 for the Dodgers. Right. No, I'm sorry, 77 for the Dodgers. Sorry. When you're three or four years removed from playing in the World Series and you're playing on a softball field, <laughs> he was a great natural athlete. People, you know, so we sought after. Tragically, he died of AIDS. Right. Uh, in 1995. And although he had communications with his t- former teammates, only one former teammate visited him. That former teammate was Dusty Baker. And that's why Dusty Baker feels like one of the great mentions of baseball to me, one of the many reasons. But there's something here I want to add about Glenn Burke. A lot of the kind of background about Glenn Burke says he was the next Willie Mays. He was not. He was never that good. And there's this kind of, you know, teams are always comparing players to Willie Mays because if you have a prospect who's as good as the next Willie Mays, right, then then you can get a lot for him. Burke had a similar skill set in that he was a wonderful fielder, had occasional pop, and could steal a lot of bases very fast. At 23 years old, he hit somebody at a good year in AAA. At 23 years old, Willie Mays won the most valuable player award in the, in the National League, right? There's no right. real comparison. But the point is, you shouldn't have to be Willie Mays to play in the major leagues if you're gay, right? 
Are we saying that you can only be gay in the major leagues if you're one of the two or three greatest people ever, players ever to pick up a bat? That seems wrong. And there's a caveat here that I want to add. There is a sense that the Dodgers dumped him because he was gay. The Dodgers traded him because he was gay, undoubtedly. Lasorda never liked him for the reasons Mm -hmm. we've discussed. But midway through the 78 season, the Dodgers were behind the Giants. They won that division by two and a half games over the Reds, six and a half games over the Giants. They traded Glenn Burke for Bill North who at that time was one of the best leadoff hitters in the game. So it was a trade. Yes, they traded a hot prospect, but they got a guy without whom they would not have won the division, and they came mm-hmm. to the two games of winning the World Series. So so we, we inflate the narrative to make Burke seem like something that he wasn't, and in doing that, we lose the nuance of the story, of the real importance of Glenn Burke. Right. Um, you know, naturally, the, the Negro Leagues have had a great influence on American culture on, on the game of baseball. And, um, you know, you have some, some members of the Negro leagues in the book. I'm, I'm wondering why, why did you choose the specific ones you did to in a way kind of represent the Negro leagues? And, and you could have, you know, there's a lot of players I could have chosen. Right. And I chose a handful of players who played in both the Negro leagues and either the Ner- American league or the national league. So Larry Doby, Jackie Robinson, Monte Irvin, uh, Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, a few others. The three, so I put Satchel Page in there because I, in, in my view, if we have the discussion about who was the greatest pitcher ever, given that, you know, I mean, obviously training is better, but in the context of their time, I don't understand why that, uh, to me, that's an easy one is Satchel Page. The proof of that for Satchel Page is that when he got to the majors at 40, he was still a great player. And at 65, but threw three shutout innings against a major league <laughs> team, at, not actually at 57, at 1965, yeah. sorry. Crazy. So, so he's in there for his greatness and also because of his impact on the culture, right? We, we, we cite Satchel Paige, you know, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. You know, United States America has had two Catholic presidents, as you know. The second one is our current president, Joe Biden. And when Biden went to see the Pope, he told him a story about Satchel Paige. Wow. And, and it's a wonderful YouTube clip because the Pope and the president don't have a common language. So it sounds like a joke, but it's through a translator. And the mm-hmm. translator is the Pope's translator in this particular case, not not. Biden's translator, and she doesn't understand baseball. Right. So he says pitcher, and he makes a throwing motion. <laughs> like he's supposed to know what it looks like to pitch a baseball, let the Pope, you know. But, but that's the impact he has on the culture. Josh Gibson, because similarly, if you're going to have the greatest hitter ever debate, you know, the greatest home run hitter, Gibson has to be part of that. And the fact that we just don't have the data, that he never had the opportunity to play in a full structured season for year after year the way – you know, Henry Aaron or Babe Ruth or someone like that did. And then Rube Foster is there, who was not as great a pitcher as a Satchel Page, just for example, but who created, created the, the Negro Leagues. This is a player who turned around and built an important American institution and a massively important African-American institution, cultural institution and business. So that's why he's in the book. Um, and then you have a few females in the book. Uh, yes. Jackie Mitchell is one that comes to mind. There were a few others. Um Talk about that. Why Why did you include, obviously, they never played in Major League Baseball. Why did you include the women and what is their significance? Well, you know, what I said out in the, intro, in the introduction of the book, I talk about the terms as I define them and the criteria. Right. And my criteria is, have you played, did this person play at the highest level possible sometime after 1900? Because I didn't go into the baseball prehistory, people like Cap Anson and people like that. Right. And, you know, um, but so, so... That means that Negro League players who never play in the major leagues are eligible, right? That means that Sadahara O is eligible. But for women, it's more complicated because the sexism that has kept women out has been really strong. For It's almost unquestioned it's so strong. So, but, but if we tell that story without including that, we're missing something. So I included, you know, Ela Borders, who was the first woman in modern times to, to pitch in organized baseball. Alyssa Nacken, who is the first was the first woman, and this was the 2022 season, to appear in uniform in an official role in a major league baseball game as a first base coach for the San Francisco Giants. So women like that, because I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna punish a, a woman because she wasn't able to play in the major leagues. Well, she wasn't, there's never gonna be allowed to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I included two women from the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, because that's a fascinating part of baseball history. And of American history, of what we were doing as a culture during World War II, how important baseball was to our culture at that time. 
Right. And Jackie Mitchell, and, and, and I should say, to be clear, she's not in the book because she's related to me. We are not related. There's no, you know, uh, there's no relation. I'm, not, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, Jackie Mitchell was a young woman who in an exhibition game in the 1930s struck out consecutively Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Right. And since that happened, there's this kind of, did it really happen? Was it, were Ruth and Gehrig really trying? And of course, we'll never know the answer. I can't know for sure the answer to that question. But there's a sexism in that question. How could a girl strike these guys out? But they struck out 50 to 70 times a year, disproportionately against left-handed pitching. And in the 19, early 1930s, most pitchers weren't all that good. So the idea that a girl who worked hard, who practiced, because she was a girl at the time, who had the opportunity to train with a Hall of Famer because she was friendly with Dazzy Vance for whatever reason, wouldn't be good enough? And, and, and it's just like axiomatic? I don't buy that. I think she would have. She might have been good enough. Right. I wanted to at least raise that question, but I also wanted to say something else. She didn't do this on a major league field in a major league game because, she, of course, she wouldn't have been allowed to. And the idiot commissioner then signs a document banning her, voiding her, her, you know, from playing in baseball instead of embracing this, right? Right. It was, an, it was an exhibition game. It was what we called then barnstorming. And barnstorming was such a big part of the baseball story. Mm. I wanted to include a little something about barnstorming. The question I would ask is this. In 1931, would you rather go see the Chicago White Sox play the St. Louis Browns or Jackie Mitchell in a field try to strike out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig? If you could go back and had a time machine, which would you want to do? You'd do the, the latter. Right? Absolutely. You yeah. might want to see the Yankees play the Athletics or the Cardinals play the Giants or go to the World Series that year. But your average game, the real action was off in the barnstorm. So I wanted to capture that. So Jackie Mitchell is doing a lot in this book. That's really cool. Um, I want to ask you about Brad Tricky and, and, you know, fascinating figure. And, of course, he's, he's best known for his, you know, bringing Jackie Robinson to, to baseball and breaking the color line. But, but his impact on the game went so much beyond that can you talk a little a little bit about ricky and his impact his importance yes. to the game yes and branch ricky most people know him as an executive he's in the he, he qualifies because he did play for a couple years for the browns and the cardinals in the 19th right. the teens so he qualifies that whereas a guy like marvin miller who made a huge impact would, would not qualify for the book right and there's two things that ricky three things here uh in order of how well we know it jackie robinson right ricky brought jackie robinson to the brooklyn dodgers but the fall later that year larry doby made his debut with the what were then the Cleveland Indians, now the Cleveland Guardians. Bill Veck was the owner there. Ricky did not buy Jackie Robinson's contract. He essentially ignored it and signed him to a new one. So this has, speaks to the kind of racial politics, even of a guy like Ricky who was trying to do the right thing. Dope, uh, Veck bought Doby's contract. So that, that, that's significant. But Ricky, obviously, because if he did nothing else but with Jackie Robinson, he'd be a baseball, massively important baseball figure. Right. But he also, I mean, this is a heck of a thing to say, he created the affiliated minor leagues. And so what he created is, in other words, that a team, a major league team in those days, let's say the Philadelphia Athletics, or in his case, the St. Louis Cardinals, had minor league teams that weren't independent with informal relationships, but their role was to produce and push talent upward to the big league team. And he did that at the helm of the St. Louis Cardinals which is the, the reason why between 1926 and 1946, the Cardinals were the best team in the National League. And in fact, when Jackie Robinson came up to the major leagues, people often forget this. Uh, there was this moment when Stan Musial, who was the great, great St. Louis Cardinal hitter and, and outfielder and first baseman, there, was, there were players on the Cardinals, the southernmost team in the National League, who said, we're not going to go on that field with that African-American. I suspect they didn't use the word African-American. That's the word I'm going to use here. Mm -hmm. And Musial said, well, I'm going to. You guys do what you want. And so, so that's a really wonderful moment for Stan Musial. But to understand the impact of that, understand that in 1947, early in the season, the Cardinals were the best team, not the, not the Yankees. They'd been more dominant that decade than the Yankees. Mm -hmm. So, and, 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 and guys like Stan Musial, the Dean brothers, they all come up through a farm system. Uh, Enos Slaughter, Marty Marion, Harry Burkeen, that Rich, Ricky created. And of course, eventually all the other teams copied so that's huge. That's huge. And there's yeah. one more funny thing here. The Continental League, which didn't exist. You say, I don't know. There was no Continental League. That's right. The Continental League was create, was thought of, imagined in the 1950s, late 1950s, because in New York, which had been the capital of baseball for a long time, was down to one team. Dodgers and Giants had moved west, and there was no National League baseball in the biggest city in the country. That was a shame. Right. So what the idea was, 
people, we're going to create a second league, a third league, the Continental League, and we're going to, and, we'll, and our anchor team will be in New York because there's an opportunity there. And they brought in Branch Rickey, who at this point time was quite old to be the commissioner. And he never got it together to create the league. But what it did was it scared the National League enough that they said, we better get a team there. And that's why they expanded quickly to get the Mets and, of course, what were then the Houston Colt, the unfortunately named Houston Colt 45s, which who later became the Houston Astros, who later eventually moved to the American League. So to some extent, the Mets get here sooner, got here sooner here to New York because of Branch Rickey. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, what, another another guy, I, I mean, I could ask you about all 100, but uh, maybe we'll just do one or two more. Um, one other guy who, is, who I find just really interesting, it's just, it's like a quirk of history is Tommy John, because, yeah. you know, he's just, uh, first of all, I, I think a lot of people don't know he was a hell of a pitcher, had a fantastic career. And, but, you know, if you follow the game of baseball, everybody knows the name Tommy John from the surgery. And, what I mean, how revolutionary was that surgery at the time? Like, what? How big of a deal was it at the time when Tommy John had that surgery that is now? It seems every pitcher in Major League Baseball has. Just to echo what you said, to Tommy John was a great pitcher. Two hundred eighty-seven Major League wins. You should be in the Hall of Fame. If Jim Cott's in the Hall of Fame, Tommy John's a Hall of Famer. He's a he was a better pitcher by any measure. So I would support Tommy John in the Hall of Fame just on his his on the field baseball numbers. Right. And he, when he had a surgery, never been done before, never been done before. So, you know, it was an experiment. This is in the mid seventies, but because, you know, obviously Frank Joe, the doctor who did the surgery, I'm not a surgeon. He obviously did great work, right? Otherwise we wouldn't have been here. But, you know, when a player today has Tommy, Jason Dominguez is really upsetting, but the Yankees top yeah. prospect has to have Tommy John surgery. Well, that's yeah. very unfortunate. Undoubtedly, the next three months, we'll learn about several pitchers who will need the surgery. For any one of those players, you have to have the surgeon do the good work, and then you have to work your way back. And imagine being the first person to work your way back. But Tommy John did it and went on to be a very, very good pitcher after the surgery. And by the way, a very good clutch pitcher, mm -hmm. a very good big game pitcher. And for those of you who don't remember Tommy John, he was an interesting pitcher because Tommy John was a sinker ball pitcher. And... When he went from the Dodgers to the Yankees, he got even better. And the reason was the Yankees, the Dodgers had that great that infield that stayed together forever from, from you know, Garvey, Lopes, Russell, and Say. Right. The Yankees said, okay, we're going to give you Nettles, Dent, Randolph, and, and you know, Shambles, or, or, or Watson, who was playing first at that time, and they were much better fielders. So he got even better with the Yankees because he had, like, Greg Nettles, you know, fantastic defensive third baseman. Bucky Dan, you don't get any more solid than that. Willie Randolph, you know, it wouldn't been for Frank White, a perennial, it would have been a great gold glove second base. It was just ground ball after ground ball. So it was kind of a fun to watch him pitch because he was just that kind of a pitcher. And right. then the surgery changes baseball, but it does something else. It ushers, helps usher in what is called the three true outcome game. Because now pitchers are expected until they sign that big contract to throw fastballs and, and fist pitches that damages their arms as hard as they can until they need the surgery knowing they can get back. So it yeah. helps, it changes the nature of the game. I think it creates a product that isn't as fun for the fans. Obviously, it's not Tommy John's fault. And and people don't even, many people today don't know that he was a player. I've had conversations with people like that. I'll wow. say something, I said, I remember seeing Tommy John pitch. And they'll say, what are you talking about? Tommy John was a pitcher? I said, what do you mean Tommy John was a pitcher? What do you think, we just, <laughs> surgery was named after like the underwear company? What are you talking about? <laughs> That's very funny. Um, I'll ask you about one more individual who's who's in the book, and that's uh, a controversial one, Pete Rose. Um, man, I'm, I don't even know where to start with him, but what, what is his importance to the game of baseball? Pete Rose is a fascinating figure. In the 1970s, he was the face of baseball. And if you really want to dig deep, he was the face of baseball for a lot of complicated reasons. Right? Reggie Jackson was also a face of baseball, but was, it was also in the book. It was a very different kind of person. Not least one was white and one was African-American. Now, they can't do anything about how they were born, but that is true. Right. The older sports writers adored Pete Rose. He was the old style of the game. He played hard. He didn't hit too many home runs. His uniform was always dirty. Those are all fine. Good thing, except for not hitting home runs. He was an excellent player. He played very hard for most of his career. And, and he was, you know, I, I once remember said to a friend of mine, I remember in the late 80s, I said, you know, it doesn't feel like the All-Star game until I see Pete Rose spit during the national anthem, right? He was that kind of a player, always in the playoffs, 
always getting clutch hits, for the, mostly for the Reds, and then later for the Phillies when he went there. There are two things about Rose that, that make him, other than that, right? One is that this shameless chase of Ty Cobb's uh, all-time hit record, where he just stayed around. So he became, instead of being the symbol of what's great about baseball, he became the symbol of just like baseball as this weird numbers thing where just old guys won't get off the field, which is kind of odd. And then he gets caught in this gambling scandal. Right. And, you know, gambling, I, I put Hal Chase in the book, maybe one of the least known players. It was an early guy deeply involved in gambling in the 19-teens, obviously shoeless Joe Jackson. And after the 1919 World Series, one thing Landis did right is he, I mean, I don't know if he handled those players as well as I, as I might have, but he said, we have a zero tolerance policy. And Pete Rose broke that zero. I can't imagine he's the only one, but he was the biggest name and he got caught and he broke that zero tolerance policy. And then this very complicated legal machination comes in where Giamatti can't quite prove it. He never would have stood up in a court of law. So he makes him sign this kind of tricks him to think we might bring you back after a year. And, and then we don't. And now Pete Rose is for the rest of his life on the outside looking in, the outside of official baseball, the outside of the Hall of, Hall, the Hall of Fame. But on, he's still beloved by many. He's still kind of this sleazy. He always was this kind of sleazy off the field character. So he remains this. And then a couple of years ago, out of the blue, as far as I was, because I wasn't paying all that much attention, baseball embraces gambling. Right. <laughs> right. So you're watching, I'm, I'm watching a, a game once, a uh, playoff game, get ready to watch a playoff game. And the pitcher for one of the teams, I believe it was the Dodgers, was Max Scherzer. And Pedro Martinez, who was also in the book for a number of reasons, who, you know, if you watch postseason baseball, listen to Pedro Martinez, because this guy knows a lot. Of, he, his knowledge of pitching is fantastic, right? So, so they say to him, Pedro, the other guy, one of the guys on the panel, do you what's the over on strikeouts is eleven? What do you think? And Martinez is not a apparently not a gambler because instead of answering a stupid question, he just starts talking in depth about how what kind of a pitcher Max Scherzer is, which if you like baseball, is really interesting to hear one Hall of Famer talking about another future Hall of Famer. That's what makes the game fun. And they just sure. want a number. That's right. how much they've embraced baseball. If you embrace baseball like that, you got to bring Joe Jackson and Pete Rose into If you embrace gambling like that, you got to bring Pete Rose and Joe Jackson in the Hall of Fame. The hypocrisy is too much to ignore. Yeah, yeah. Um, who would you say are the most important players in the game today? Well, Shohei Otani is is important because he's just changed the game so much. Uh, does, does Albert Pujols? He's still technically we can can we count him as in the game today? Um, Mike it's Trout, your book, man, you can count whoever you want. Mike, Mike <laughs> Trout, yeah. And Mike Trout is in this book, but Mike Trout is in this book because. To me, Mike Trout is a great symbol of how baseball has lost its cultural significance. Absolutely. For a decade, he's the best player in the game. And I think if Mike Trout, you know, stopped on my stoop to eat, drink a cup of coffee, most passersby wouldn't notice him, wouldn't know who he was. So, yeah. so, so I think of him as a symbol of that. More recent players who are in the book, Ken Griffey Jr., which isn't so recent anymore, Barry Bonds, uh, Derek Jeter, of course, Pedro yeah. Martinez. So, you know, the, the game, it's, it's an evolving story. So there will always be, you know, new players coming into the, in, into the book. Uh, Bryce Harper is an example. And, uh, you know, Bryce Harper is a great ball player. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of teams that kind of wish they'd done what the Phillies done did and just signed him to that contract because he's such a great hitter. But what fascinates me about Harper is the way he was tra- – he's almost like a machine built to be a baseball star. And I don't mean that in an insulting way to him. I don't think it's his fault. But, you know, didn't finish high school. Started junior college. That's a faster track. On the right. cover of all these magazines at 16. And what Harper signifies is that the path to the major leagues, if you're American, by the time you're 13, 14, you're in a separate elite class. And and part of the mythology, the cultural, the vibe of baseball was – you know, the guy driving around the Midwest and stopping at a game and seeing someone throwing harder than he's ever seen or, you know, some guy just hitting home run after home run out of some. And, and, you know, you drive around any state in America and there'll be some ball field and somebody will, older guy will point to you and say, oh, when so-and-so was playing here, he hit a home run and it went over those trees and into that river. That's gone now because everyone's yeah. brought into the structure and Harper signifies that and it's nothing against Bryce Harper. Right. And the cool thing is, of course, we we can't fully answer that question of who the most important players in yeah. baseball are right now because some may go on to be 
uh, fantastic managers or broadcasters or a commissioner or do some politics or do something outside of the game, which is kind of what's so cool about your book is so many people who influence the game, not just, you know, they, they played on the field, but they, their greatest influence was not as a player. For most um, part, yes. Yeah. I, uh, I, 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 as I said, I really enjoyed the book. I, I encourage people to, to read it. There's so many more names we didn't get to, subjects we didn't get to, the whole, you know, the free agency movement, uh, people you have in there for their relation to steroids, um, other groundbreakers, uh, the analytics movement. I mean, the, you, 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 you cover everything in there. So there, there's so much more. I could talk to you all day, but uh, you have a class to prepare for. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, I'll get you out of here with one last question. I'd like to yes. ask all my guests. Um, first, once again, Lincoln's book is called the 100 most important players in baseball history. Um, and as we said, one of the fun things about it is it, it, as you're reading it, it gets your mind working as well. And you, you inevitably come up with, I'm sure everybody has a player or two that, you know, that you miss that they think have to be on the list. And that's part of the fun of it. Um, Lincoln, my final question is, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Ball four. Okay. I'm sure you Which get Bouton, that. of course, is also yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yes, is in the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are you – know, and, and I should say, I really only read baseball books. I'm not – you know, I, people confuse us. I'm not really a sports fan or a sports guy. I have an obsession. I love everything about baseball. But, you know, I'll root for the 49ers and the Warriors, but I probably couldn't tell you more than two or three of the guys on the team, Right. Right. But there are a handful of books. The early Bill James baseball abstracts are in that category as well. Anything by Roger Angel mm. that affect me as a person and not just my relationship to baseball. So Roger Angel made me understand what you can do with words. I mean, such a beautiful writer. And writing about it is something I loved. And, you know, I write about all kinds of topics now. And, and I'll never be a good writer as Roger Angel. But, I like, that's a model. With this, there's every now and then I read a novelist like that. But, but that, what he did with that. Bill James... The early baseball abstracts, which I started reading when I was in like ninth grade, really got me thinking that, you know, it's okay to question the BS around you. It's mm -hmm. okay not to take at face value what everyone else believes. And I think my students would say that's what makes me a good instructor because I say, so what are they, what's the question not being asked? What are the assumptions? And he taught me to take that losing baseball as a case study to life. And then Bouton, that book, Ball Four, just opens up so much. It's an insight into what the game is really like, the irreverence. You know, I live at the kind of intersection, I mean, in terms of my, inside my own head, of baseball and countercultural irreverence. And Bouton's book marries that together so well. There's a wonderful, if I can quote one line from that book, he's saying it was early in the season and the guys in the pilots, the pitchers, are watching the game from the bullpen. Maybe it's even spring training. And Eddie O'Brien, who is this kind of, not just not very smart pitching coach as Bouton uh, portrays him turns to the other the pitchers and says the key to pitching boys is to throw strikes <laughs> and Bouton writes after that gee thanks Eddie and my friends and I for years whenever someone says something just really obvious we say gee thanks Eddie <laughs> so that book enormous impact on me that's great all right well Lincoln thanks again so much for coming on the podcast uh and best of luck with the book thank you very much it's an absolute pleasure